the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Those are verses 6 and 7 of Exodus 34, which are the verses we've been considering during this first part of the season of Advent 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. And so I have a little bit of a swerve for you to use professional wrestling parlance, a little bit of a swerve for you today. Because what what we're going to look at is that very last thing, that who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the sins of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And so what we're going to look at there is is what all this means. This This kind of pulls everything together in that. It doesn't sound like an attribute of mercy, does it? It is. And so it's interesting, though, because not only does it feel a little odd to say that that's an attribute of God's mercy, but what it's saying is is that he will by no means clear the guilty. And so it's it's two different things going on here, and one of those is the word clear is not the actual word, not the best way to translate it, but it's translating concepts here. And so the word and the way that it's interpreted in all of Judaism has to do with cleansing, which should be familiar language for us as Christians. This cleansing, we are cleansed by the blood of Christ, we are cleansed by his sacrifice, we are cleansed, we are purified, we are made whole, we are made sanctified by the blood of Christ. And so that, that sanctification comes with a process. What we, what we say first is we are justified. In other words, that, that our sins are set aside by the blood of Christ when we plead for that, when we ask that the blood of Christ be applied to our sins, then, then we are justified. We are justified in the sense that we um, can have right standing before God. We know that we will pass through judgment because of that justification work. Then the next step in our journey is the process of sanctification, and it is indeed a process. You are not immediately sanctified. There are things that you will struggle with the rest of your life. And if you don't think you're struggling with any sin, if you think you have somehow overcome sin in your life, you are mistaken. There's just no other way to say it. You are mistaken. That's not the case. You, you, you have sin that you're blind to. That's just the way it's going to be. Nobody is going to reach a state of perfection in this life. Um, I don't care what it is you believe, that's wrong. <laughs> there are things that you're overlooking as sin in your life if you think you have conquered sin. So let's just get through that right away. Um, that we should be pursuing sanctification. We should be asking God constantly to reveal sin in our lives, to allow us to see it as he sees it, which is an abhorrent thing, and then to turn away from it. That, that's the process of sanctification, is acknowledging sin and turning away from it and moving in a different direction. That, that's the process. That's called repentance. It's seeing things the way God sees them in order that we would not do them again. You know, it, it's, it's the process that we hope for our children when we raise them, that they will see things the way that we've taught them to see them, and they will see them as horrible as we, we do. 
And that's always a process. I mean, I look back and think on things that I did when I was younger, when I was in high school, when I was in college, whatever, and and look back and just cringe, right? I mean, there's so many things that I did, said, whatever, that I just look back on and cringe. And so, but God moved me along the way to see it in a different way. It's not just a process of maturation. Sometimes it's a process of more than maturation. And I know that because I occasionally talk to old friends who want to relive some of those days as though they were the glory days. No, no, they're not. It's, it, that's not the way to see it at all. I get it. I do understand it. But I'm not allowed to see it that way because the Holy Spirit within me makes me cringe at those things. And so, so we've looked at all these aspects of grace as though it somehow is, is unique to Judaism, but, but the swerve is this. It's not. These things are all common grace, is what the theological term in Christianity is for these things. These are all common grace. These are the things that allowed the world to exist in the face of a righteous God. And, and so there's the definition of common grace. I mean, there's, there's multiple ways to say it. It's every favor falling short of salvation, which this undeserving and sin-cursed world enjoys at the hand of God, including the delay of wrath. That sounds familiar, right? The migration of our—the mitigation of our sin natures. In other words, we're not as corrupt as we could be. Natural events that lead to prosperity and all gifts that humans use and enjoy naturally. That's, that's one way of defining it. There's a short little definition that I, that I like, um, and then I'm going to give a little longer one after that. So this is John Murray, who was a, a Protestant theologian from about 200 years ago. He says, in every fa- it's every favor of whatever kind or degree falling short of salvation, which this undeserving and sin-cursed world enjoys at the hand of God, which is very close to what I said before. Abraham Kuyper, who was also just a phenomenal theologian, uh, in the Protestant world, defined it as that act of God by which negatively he curbs the operations of Satan, death, and sin. In other words, he allows them only so much latitude to do these things, and by which positively he creates an intermediate state for this cosmos as well as for our human race, which is and continues to be deeply and radically sinful, but in which sin cannot work out its end. In other words, the, the way that the earth exists, the way that human life continues to exist before a holy God has everything in the world to do with his forbearance. That's common grace. It's not just that God puts up with it, but it's also that he sets limits and boundaries for things, and, and he doesn't allow things to get as bad as they could be. And so then he also continues to give grace to the world, to give himself into the world, to, 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 do, to allow good things to happen in this world when, there's, when otherwise it would completely fall into a state of entropy. And, and there would be no escape from that state of entropy. And so God inserts himself into the process both ways, both positively in continuing to provide but negatively in setting those boundaries and limitations that can't be transgressed. It's hard at this point in time to look at our world and see where there are any limits and boundaries on human depravity, right? I mean, there's just no check and bound boundary at, at all right now. It's, it, it seems so completely out of control that it's hard to imagine that it could be worse than it is. You know, it, it, 
it, this this whole thing that like that you you probably noticed this. I have strong opinions about this transgender nonsense. Um, that that's seriously bad stuff, and and I can't believe that the medical community is bought into this with puberty blockers and everything else to to change uh, human sexuality for children. It, it's absolutely stunning. To imagine this it is a moral and ethical failure of the worst sort and so we see these things and we see the insanity and the depravity in our world and it's celebrated now it's not even looked askance at in fact if you say anything about it you become the person who is the bad guy in this and so but but common grace keeps it from being worse than it is now, there have been other periods in history that were equally depraved. The Roman Empire was incredibly depraved in Rome. Um, there, there are certainly the Third Reich, and pri- just prior to the rise of the Third Reich, was an unbelievably depraved time in Germany. There have been times otherwise that, that have been horrible. So all the things we we're talking about are, are have to do with the common grace God gives to the world. And then we come to this whole thing about who will by no means clear the guilty. And we've got to look at that real real quick. This is today's thing, is, is that he will no means clear the guilty. And it's really odd because, like I said, it's talking about cleansing. And, and it's impossible to read that verse straight up as though it's there's mercy and grace in it. Because it, it negates itself. He will by no means do this thing. It's not that he will do this thing. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. But it's interesting. The way that they see it is this, that, that the plain words of the text won't allow you to see that, except God revealed it in, in a certain kind of way to Moses in the way that he revealed it on Sinai, the, the hiddenness of himself. He Because he, he puts on, in, in, in the reading actually, God cloaks himself to give this revelation and only allows Moses to see the backside of it. So it's in the recitation of it, in a service, when they can say it this way. They stop before it says, by no means clear. There's a double recitation of a verb here. Uh, it's a negation of a double verb. And, and it's really an interesting, it's like a double negative. You know, he can't not, not, he can't not do this, right? So he can do that. Well, this is the other way around. This is a double negation. And so what happens then is, is become, it, you read it and you think that's not mercy, that's justice that he visits the iniquity on these people. But what they say is, is that when God does this, when he gives the re- revelation that there's a place to stop, when you read the recitation, and, and it, it truncates the verse and makes it become that he will clear the guilty. But there's a, something hidden in that. There's a hiddenness to it, and that's repentance. The hidden thing, this hidden piece of grace, which is cleansing and forgiveness, it's actually there. So the guilty have an opportunity to pass through and be passed over. And that opportunity is repentance, which in um, 
uh, in Judaism, it's a process, and it's called shuva. And it includes things like going to the person that you may have sinned against and confessing the sin to them, and then also offering to make restitution, which is part of what the 12 steps in, in Alcoholics Anonymous is based on. And they see this in, in Abraham's appeal to God for Sodom, that asking that he'll spare the the city of Sodom. And from that, they get the principle that if we want a world, then it can't be based on justice alone. And if you want justice, there can't be a world because of sin. But it, but it requires something other than justice for the world to survive. And it, it requires mercy and it requires grace on the part of God. And that, so what they see is those 13 attributes describe how God relates to the world at large, which, which is exactly what I described for you and defined for you as common grace. But there's a special case, and, and now we've raised things to a higher level here. So what happens is, is that, that there's, a, there, there's a existence is enabled by common grace. Existence, just, just living this life. The problem becomes when a person decides that they want to do more than exist. They want to, they, they recognize that this is not all there is. There must be more. And the person begins then to desire something beyond what's not even really existence at that point, and that is they want to have a relationship with the living God. Well, cleansing, forgiveness, that is required in order to draw near to God, and they recognize that completely. And what, one of the places where they see it very clearly is after the sin of the golden calf, after all this has happened, God looks at Moses and he said, okay, and so go lead the nation where I told you to go. Behold, my angel will walk before you, and on the day of my accounting, I shall make an accounting for the sin of them. In other words, you can go, and my angel will go with you, but not me because I'll break out against you and destroy you. And Moses pleads with the Almighty here, please don't let this happen. In fact, if you won't go, we're not going anywhere. We will not leave this place without you. There's no hope for us if your presence doesn't accompany us. And so Moses recognized that that there's an existential need for the presence of God among his people and said, we won't go anywhere. We'll stay right here at this mountain if you don't go with us. An angel isn't good enough. No, existence isn't good enough unless you're there. And so then repentance is what's required. The people need to feel the weight of their sin, and they need to understand the cost of that sin. The cost of that sin can be God's not going to go with us. And so they mourn and weep over their sin. But, but it's the interesting thing is, is that, that repentance itself isn't a precondition for this attribute. This attribute itself reveals the need for repentance and brings it into reality. There's, there's neither justice nor mercy without the cleansing of sin. And that's what Jesus came into the world to bring. He came into the world to bring the assurance of the forgiveness of sins. He, he, that's the reason he can forgive sins. He can see contrition and understand the man who, who is no, no longer able to walk. 
and he's able to say, your sins are forgiven first. As the prerequisite for the healing, the man needed the forgiveness of sin in order to do that. That's the reason with the lepers, prior to, to his resurrection, the way Jesus dealt with the lepers was to say, go show yourself. I've cleansed you and made you whole. Now go show yourself to the priests and do what they command you because there's forgiveness of sin that's necessary. And so now he's going to present a challenge to them and to the priests. But he told them, you got to go make the sacrifice for sin. In order to certify this cure, you have to do this. Why? Because Jesus hadn't yet made the sacrifice for sin. But if we want to draw close to God, if we want more than common grace, then, then it's incumbent on us to repent. And what's interesting is they see this, I believe, in exactly the right way. They, they said, if you come to service, if you come to the Sleekot service during Passover, uh, not Passover, sorry, uh, Rosh Hashanah, if you come during the 10 days of all between Rosh Hashanah and, um, and the Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur, and you, you recite the prayers of Sleekot, you recite the divine attributes of mercy, and you don't want to draw near to God, then simply saying it, doesn't activate it. You won't receive it unless you want to draw near to God. And I believe that remains true for us as Christians all throughout our lives. I believe that there's a constant move and a need in our lives calling us to repent, but it's only there if we truly want to draw closer and closer to God that when we do, then he will expose these things to us and say, I want that too. But I need something from you, John. I need you to deal with this sin. If you want to get any closer to me than you are right now, you have to deal with sin in your life. And you've got to deal with this in order to take one more step up on the ladder. You've got to do this. And, and I believe that, that, that this is exactly right. It, it's occasioned for us as Christians, when we want to draw closer to God and when we ask him, you know, why do I feel this distance in our relationship? Well, ultimately, we, we I think, know what that is, is that there's something we need to deal with. Now, is that true when somebody comes to Christ? And my answer to you there is no. I don't believe anybody can desire to draw close to God unless he first draws them. I believe it's a move of the Holy Spirit in us. It's a gift to move us to a place where we even want that. Once we're Christians, that's changed. We should always want to draw closer to God, and therefore we should always be dealing with sin in our lives because we should always want to draw closer to him, and we should want to remove any impediment or barrier between us and him. He wants that so desperately and he gave us his son to have the assurance of the forgiveness of sins. I don't believe there's any coincidences in God's world, and I certainly don't believe there was a coincidence that the temple was destroyed only about three decades after the death of Jesus. And the reason I say that is because the sacrificial system had to go away because it could only be done in that place. It was done away with at the cross. All of that, all that system was gone. The principles behind it aren't gone. The truth about how do we draw close to God always requires for us to deal with sin in our lives 
in order to draw closer and closer to God. The closer we get to him, the more we have to deal with sin in our lives. If we really want that closeness, then we have to deal with it. Are we satisfied with where we are? Are we satisfied with our relationship with him such that we could be prepared truly to receive him again in his second coming? That's the challenge and the charge always of Advent, is to prepare for the second coming, knowing the first has come, celebrating that, but hoping for the second coming. We can take advantage of the common grace that's given to all mankind, and we can appreciate that grace, and we should appreciate that grace. We should, we should absolutely praise him for that grace and the mercy of common grace. We need to be seeking more and more. But the other side of it is, from an evangelistic standpoint, we need to take advantage of that common grace while we can, so that we can then go and share the gospel with our friends, relatives, neighbors, whoever it is that God puts in our path to share it with. And we need to share it in such a way that it's clear and that we make the cross the central focus of everything we do, and then this resurrection that seals the deal and says, yes, I know that Jesus' sacrifice was accepted by the Father, and therefore my pleading is his sacrifice in order that I can share in his life. But let us give thanks today and allow God to move by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, to show us anything in our lives that's putting distance in our relationship with him, because that's his desire, is for us to draw closer than we are now and to be truly prepared to greet with joy the second coming of Jesus.